This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 9th of November. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Government officials are to meet with representatives of uh, the hospitality sector today and remind them about the COVID-19 regulations that are in place and their role in protecting public health. It is okay, for example, to go to a pub or a nightclub. We need to be mindful that the more we do of that, the greater the risk we have. And we all individually need to try to cut down our level of risk and reduce our levels of social contacts uh, over the course of um, uh, the next number of weeks. The Taoiseach Micheál Martin said yesterday, the bottom line is we want to see maximum compliance with existing guidance and existing regulations, particularly in terms of uh, the vaccination certificates. We're focused very much on how each individual sector can offer protection for both the staff and the customers of whatever service uh, uh, that it might provide. The problem is that the regulations put it in place to protect public health are not being followed by all, all of the time. We know, for example, that perhaps in every setting that people are going out to, they're not being asked, for example, for the COVID pass. Well, we need you as an individual to understand that an environment where you're not being asked about these things or where hand-washing facilities are not present or it's evident that mask wearing is not as it should be, you should look at that as a risky and riskier environment than... Than, than, than it should be. In fact, the ESRI says 37% of pubs do not check for COVID certs, and that's up from 21%, and some 34% of restaurants are not asking for a COVID cert. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Hoolan, has this advice for you if you do go out for a drink or a meal and you're not asked for a COVID cert. You should leave, feel empowered to leave, and certainly not go back to visit. And all of that would help to encourage compliance and adherence in the sectors. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan. Dr Ina Kelly is the President of the Irish Medical Organisation and a Specialist in Public Health Medicine and joins us on the line. Good morning to you once again, Dr Kelly. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Why is it, do you think, that so many establishments are not looking for these COVID certs? I think overall they're saying that 70% are compliant, 23% require additional compliance and 7% are deemed to be non-compliant? Well, of course, I can't really uh, say exactly why that is, but I presume there's an element of complacency that 
you know, we have opened up in the community and therefore that there is, a, I suppose, maybe a, a lack of consideration for the fact that there's a risk still in the in the community for all of us, really, still. And we were going to have to protect ourselves from COVID-19 um, by many methods, you know, until, um, I suppose, until it's under control in Ireland. And I suppose until we've got a global control of COVID-19, unfortunately, Ireland is always going to have some um, element of risk coming from international uh, spread of COVID-19. So it's hard to see exactly where the end of this will be, but we have really been able to open up and it's been a great privilege to be able to get out and about for a lot of us, you know, and to be able to go to uh, into restaurants and so on. But it is so important that we follow the rules while we're doing this or otherwise we're going to end up then in a situation that we're not able to manage um, to uh, live with COVID in Ireland because, you know, part of living with COVID is having a health system that is able to manage the health care of people, both people with COVID and people without COVID. And at the moment, we're at a very, we're in a very tight space and the health, you know, the health service is being overwhelmed by uh, COVID cases. And, you know, that's very complicated within the health system as well, because, of course, managing a COVID, the people with COVID, you have to have huge infection prevention and control to prevent outbreaks. So it all takes a lot more work than looking for looking after, say, patients with other types of okay. So Why is this regulation so important? Uh, can you explain that to us? Uh, well, because I, I think people will tell you, and they'll be very happy to tell you, that we can all get COVID, whether we're vaccinated or not, and we can all get COVID and pass it on, whether we're vaccinated or yes. not. Yeah, no, that's and that's true. And I think at the moment, we're, I mean, it, it would be lovely if the vaccine was such that it was, you know, it was able to prevent spread. But what it does do is prevent serious illness to a greater, you know, to a much greater uh, extent than um, when we weren't vaccinated. So those of us who are vaccinated have, are much, much less likely to be hospitalised and much less likely to have to go to intensive care. And and I suppose, and that's where it's important that, you know, um, the more people who are vaccinated, the less likely we are to require the health services. That makes a difference there in, in terms of it takes a lot of the seriousness from the infection, you know, it reduces mortality, reduces morbidity, as we call it. Mm. And, and therefore, it makes it a less serious infection. But of course, we still have so many people who are, you know, even just even small percentages are a lot of people who aren't vaccinated. And do you and think that we're less likely to pass it on? Sorry, Dr. Kelly, but do you think we're less likely to pass it on if we are vaccinated? Uh, I suppose the more we're less likely to pass it on if we're not exposed to it in the first place. It's right. actually trying to stop the spread. Mm. But if you are vaccinated yeah. and you catch yeah. COVID, and I think there's probably, yeah. uh, just anecdotally speaking, there's probably a lot of people who have COVID and don't realise it because the vaccines are so good and they've been vaccinated yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they're not aware that they have it. Uh, but if you have been vaccinated and uh, you have COVID, are you less likely to pass COVID on to somebody else than somebody who has not been vaccinated? Do you shed less virus? Well, I, unfortunately, we, there does seem to be a fair amount of high viral load for people with uh, with COVID nineteen, even when they have been vaccinated. In some in some people, anyway. So therefore, you can't really we can't really say that that you're actually less likely. Now, I think we're hoping with the booster doses, you know, from the third dose that that uh, that is actually going to make a difference. And I suppose if you can stop people getting the infection, if the vaccine can stop people getting infected infected in the mm. first place, then they're much less likely. Obviously, so that's where I think we're hoping that the next round of vaccines will help to really make a big difference in that regard. But of course, it's a new virus; it's a new, 
you know, we're managing something that we've never had to manage before. And so it's hard to predict exactly how that's going to be. I mean, we did think that it was going to prevent some transmission. And, you know, I, but I think the main, the most important thing is vaccination is not a magic bullet. You know, it isn't the only thing we need mm-hmm. to do. Unfortunately, we need to do a lot of the things that we're very good at doing anyway. We've been doing it for a year and a half. For most of us, we have learned how to wear masks, you know, uh, keep our distance and, and enjoy our lives outdoors and in well-ventilated spaces. You know, to to the to a great extent. So, but undoubtedly, there is that small percentage of people uh, who you spoke about earlier who don't believe in this and won't get vaccinated. It's not yeah. uh, that they can't get vaccinated; they won't get vaccinated. And uh, for those people listening to us, and they quite often contact us, telling us about their bodily integrity, and they'll decide what to put into their bodies and not. I, I suppose to one degree, that's fair enough. But from your perspective, as somebody who's working on the front line, uh, and on behalf of your colleagues who are working on the front line, your concern is that they'll get COVID and because they haven't been vaccinated they'll get very very sick and need hospital care and that has the potential to overwhelm the hospital system is that correct? Well that's yeah so the impact of I suppose uh, you know all of our all of our behaviours impact on other people and if it's partly if I get COVID and I get sick and I go into hospital I'm taking a, a, a bed a bed that somebody maybe who with cancer treatment can't you know who needs cancer treatment can't have and so on. So it's it's that impact that we have, the knock-on impact of 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 having COVID. Or if I get COVID and I pass it on to somebody, one of my loved ones, and they die of it, or they are hospitalised with it, that's the problem. Really, it's breaking those chains of transmission that is is so important, and it continues to be important because I suppose in a way, you know, we're living in a in a, in a, in a you know with community outbreaks of COVID of you know, very considerable. Um, spread within communities at the moment, as happens, I suppose we we don't normally notice it. You know, for say less serious infections, you know, we all used to get used to colds and things like that, but mm. we don't expect them to cause us to go to hospital and so on. So we don't really mind that. So we have community spread, but we don't have. You know, unfortunately, we have, and it's still a serious enough illness that causes. Um, uh, you know, uh, people to require mm. healthcare and and serious, you know, and serious, um, you know, serious illness is not uncommon, and therefore it is a huge, it, it's a huge burden on people, but it's also a huge burden on the health service too, and mm. especially I suppose coming into with winter then when you have the other viruses that start, and okay, not all of them are very serious, so influenza mm. can be serious, not as serious now of course as COVID, mm. but it also confuses the matter when you're trying to diagnose it as well so it just makes everything more complicated and you know yeah. and people with influenza you know elderly people with influenza do end up with serious illness as well and you know we even have young people every year it's something that we don't always appreciate you, know, you might have a, a very rare case even with influenza and um, that has to be hospitalized or even in intensive care and occasionally even a young person will die with influenza. Mm. So these infectious diseases are serious. And Okay, so if know, people are yeah. socialising or if they're allowed to socialise, if they're not being asked for the COVID certs uh, uh, and uh, can gain entry, uh, there's yeah. a risk, a, a very a serious risk because of the virulence of the disease at the moment that they'll end up sick uh, and the potential to be very sick and the potential uh, to need ICU care. Uh, and that uh, could act... Uh, as a threat to somebody else's life because they're denied maybe a double bypass or uh, the removal of a tumour or something like that because you can't go ahead uh, and operate on those people because you may not have the ICU beds in place. If it's that important, if it's a question of life and death, which clearly is listening to you this morning, Dr Kelly, uh, should it not be rolled out beyond hospitality, beyond pubs and nightclubs and restaurants, to hairdressers and gyms and museums and galleries and libraries and so on. 
I think that um, the, I mean, the regulations that have been brought in and the and the guidance that has been brought in has been brought in in per each in each sector based on the risks in those particular sectors. I suppose the risks in the sectors where there's a lot of alcohol is is the is one of the problems because our behaviour changes with alcohol, and therefore it's important that we put up a much more, I suppose, um, you know, protective environment in that space because otherwise. Uh, people, I suppose, invade each other's spaces. You know, it's normal mm-hmm. enough with alcohol to do that, and therefore, it's a, it's a different environment to many other spaces where people are. You know, where you stay where they are, stay where they are, and mm. you know, I know going to the hairdressers, you you sit down and you stay there, and you know, you're not wandering around and so on. So, it, look, it's each each sector, each each space is different, and each uh, risk is different, and each one of those has been risk assessed. I suppose to the extent that is possible and in order to try and find the right combination of uh, protections that really are likely to make the um, that practice viable for, for, for as long as possible, you know, and, and if we can manage to keep, um, you know, to try and keep safe in these places, then we can... Um, get through this and try and get to live with COVID properly, you know, without causing collapse in the health service. Okay, but you would ask uh, those uh, owners and managers of restaurants and pubs and so on to look for the COVID certs, uh, to our listeners then who may be socialising uh, only to go into places that look for COVID certs and to leave if they haven't been looking for them or if uh, there's a problem with mask wearing and staff not ma- wearing masks or allowing people to walk a- around in the pub and that type of thing. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think if you care about your own health, I think, and that of your family, I think you need, you need to you know, watch watch for the, where the risks are and try and avoid them. And I suppose if you feel that the place you're in isn't doing the things it's supposed to do, it isn't, it isn't actually looking after your safety. So just make sure to take care of yourself and your family as well. Okay. doing that. All right. Well, it's uh, obviously in all of our interest. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Dr. Ina Kelly, who's uh, the president of the Irish uh, Medical Organisation, a specialist in public health medicine. Uh, and in case uh, you're wondering about uh, the importance of being vaccinated, there's a, a lot of people who can't uh, get vaccinated. And of course, there's a lot of people who won't get vaccinated. And I think a lot of us have uh, some understanding for uh, women uh, who've uh, been expecting babies who've decided not to get vaccinated, uh, at least not until a certain stage in their pregnancy or until after the baby was born. But here's some sobering news for you. Just reading this uh, today uh, in the Irish Times, uh, a report from the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, which has looked at 35 women who were admitted to intensive care. Now, this is the 35 women who were in admitted to intensive care this year. One of the 35 women who were admitted to ICU this year was partially vaccinated. That's just one of the 35. The 34 women uh, who were not partially vaccinated, in fact, were not vaccinated at all. They were unvaccinated. So all of the 35 women were not fully vaccinated. One of them was just partially vaccinated. Most of those women were seriously ill and required significant medical intervention and almost half of them were put on a ventilator, uh, assistance to breathe, in other words. One woman, uh, one of these pregnant women, spent 77 days in ICU uh, and the advice to you is if you're pregnant, like everybody else, uh, if uh, there is no other reason for you not to get vaccinated. You should get vaccinated. Well, we're still in the midst of a global pandemic. Europe has been the epicentre of this infection in so many ways all the way through the course of this pandemic. Uh, and in many ways, it's not releasing its grip. 
we have very high levels of transmission, but what's different at this point in time to the high levels of transmission we've had in the past, we have excellent protection against the progression to severe illness um, as, uh, because of the high levels of vaccination that we have. So the likelihood of you ending up with severe infection is significantly reduced. It's not eliminated, unfortunately, but it's significantly reduced because, the, because of how good these vaccines are. So again, that underscores the importance of coming forward if you haven't yet been vaccinated or if it's time for your booster to come forward for that booster. And for all these reasons, it's really important then, as part of our plan, that we focus on the two key strands, our individual uh, behaviour, our adherence to all the basic advice that we know works. It has worked over the course of this pandemic in this country and elsewhere. So these are the messages that people perhaps don't want to hear. We've all got a little bit tired of it, but we need to continue to focus on the importance of basic hand washing, wearing of masks, social distancing, recognising risk environments and being aware of the kinds of activities that were involved in the, that do constitute, to constitute a higher risk of transmission, reducing the amount of contact that we have as much as we reasonably can and staying away from as many of those high activities as we can over a period of time. Dr. Tony Houlihan, once again there, thanks to Tom in Dundalk, who says, My worry is that serious illness may be missed because hospitals and GP surgeries are under pressure. I think that's exactly the point, Tom. Uh, or not that they're missed, uh, but they're not treated. Uh, a tumour may not be removed because they plan that type of surgery knowing that you may need ICU care afterwards. And if there's a worry that there won't be an ICU bed available for you, they won't bring you in to remove that tumour or for a heart bypass or some of these other serious operations. Tom goes on to say, we know that many people during the peak of the pandemic put off getting symptoms checked and we cannot have that situation again. Absolutely right, Tom, and thank you indeed uh, for making that point and uh, for your call to the programme this morning. Tony in County Loud uh, was in touch with us towards the end of uh, the programme as we were going off air yesterday, uh, and I just saw your comment uh, as uh, we were finishing up, Tony, uh, but uh, thanks as well to you for making contact with us. He says the biggest complaint he's heard from people about hospitals is the standard of food uh, when you most need to keep up your strength. Thanks, uh, Tony, uh, for that. That follows on uh, from uh, the conversation we were having with Hickway yesterday about the survey uh, of uh, people who have been in hospital recently and uh, they're hoping to hear about their experiences, good and bad. I'm surprised to hear you say that about the food, uh, Tony. Uh, I did spend some time in hospital. Uh, it's a good while ago now, thank God. But I always thought the food was fantastic. I was always very, very happy with it. Uh, another uh, thing that Tony says <laughs> while he was at it, he says, can you clarify what the position on COVID-19 deaths are here as we never seem uh, to be getting the number of deaths. They're using a different format than the one in Northern Ireland where uh, on television they're giving the number of deaths every day whereas here uh, we're not doing that. Uh, Why is that uh, and what's the logic for it? Well they've Uh, moved to a weekly system, Tony. Uh, They announced the number of deaths on a weekly basis every Thursday uh, and uh, it's not good news. I think it was uh, 53 or 63 last week and uh, something similar the week before. So you're looking on uh, between 5, 8, 10 deaths a a day on average. Uh, And lastly, Tony said, on the matter of triggering Article 16, it should not be forgotten that Ursula von der Leyen was the first to do this in error and suffered no consequences for it, unlike a much minor indiscretion by Phil Hogan, which resulted in his sacking. 
please explain that, Tony. Uh, I'll take that as a, a, a point uh, that you're making rather than a, a question, a rhetorical question, perhaps, Tony. But thank you indeed uh, for your text to, to the programme. Thank you to everybody who's been in touch. Uh, just a couple of comments coming in through us at this stage. Uh, but if you would like to make comment on the programme, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, thanks uh, to the listener who called, describing themselves as a concerned listener, wondering if it's not time uh, for children aged six and older to be wearing masks in school. They're picking up the virus in school and spreading it to adults at home. Can't understand why it's not compulsory for them to be wearing masks. On WhatsApp, a listener in touch to ask, what's the story with wearing of masks in shops? Is it mandatory? They say their local shop is a disaster. Lots of people entering the shop with no masks, does the shop owner have the right to demand that they wear one? It is mandatory. There are exemptions, of course, and that's uh, the excuse that some people are using. uh, And sometimes it is true. uh, There are certain categories of uh, people who are exempt from wearing masks. uh, But if uh, they tell the shop owner that they're exempt from wearing a mask, it puts the shop owner in a very difficult position. There's just some troublesome people out there who have no regard for other people and no respect for human life. uh, And uh, that, unfortunately, is uh, the situation. Mairead Indrahada says, is it not time now just to roll out the booster vaccine to everyone? We don't want restrictions reimposed, but I fear that is what is going to happen if we keep going the way we are. Let's hope it's not the case, but thank you as well uh, for your call, Mairead. Now, as you know, Barack Obama, former American president, was in Glasgow yesterday. I am the father of two daughters in the early 20s. So I have some sense of all the stuff that gets thrown at young people these days. It's not always easy being young today. And for most most of your lives, if you're in that generation, you've been bombarded with warnings about what the future will look like if you don't address climate change. And meanwhile, you've grown up watching many of the adults who are in positions to do something about it either act like the problem doesn't exist or refuse to make the hard decisions necessary to address it. And that's a source of real anxiety and real anger at older people. And some of you no doubt wonder if you'll be able to be safe in the community where you've grown up. Whether you'll have to raise your own kids in a world ravaged by extreme weather and climate migration and conflict. As one 16-year-old said, For us, the destruction of the planet is personal. I really thought it must have been inspirational, especially for young people, to listen to Obama yesterday. And that's why my message to young people begins with acknowledging you are right to be frustrated. Folks in my generation have not done enough to deal with a potentially cataclysmic problem that you now stand in here. But I also want to share some advice my mother used to give me. You know, if I was feeling anxious or angry or depressed or scared, she'd look at me and she'd say, don't sulk. Get busy. Get to work. And change what needs to be changed. And luckily, that's exactly what young people around the world are doing right now. 
two years ago, a Swedish teenager named Greta Thunberg inspired millions of people to join the largest climate demonstrations in decades. And indeed, Greta Thunberg is obviously one of those people who got busy, as Obama's mother put it to him when he was a youngster himself. Uh, He went on to mention an awful lot of uh, young people uh, who have also been very busy uh, tackling climate change, uh, along with uh, Greta Thunberg, uh, all of the young ambassadors that there are around the world at this stage. A lot of people now know about Greta, but the world is full of Gretas. I get that. I I promise you, unlike Greta, I was not on the cover of Time magazine when I was 16 years old. Uh, And if I was skipping school, it had nothing to do with climate change. (laughs) But there are plenty of things that each and every one of you young people can do that won't require devoting your entire life to the cause, but will make a real difference. The first and most important is, if you are age eligible, to vote the issue. Vote like your life depends on it, because it does. All right. Well, Barack Obama is a politician, of course, and he advised young people to get political. I wonder uh, if he managed to bring them along with him. I recognize that a lot of young people may be cynical about politics. But the cold, hard fact is... We will not have more ambitious climate plans coming out of governments unless governments feel some pressure from voters. In one survey of young people in 22 countries, more people cited climate change as one of the most important issues facing the world than anything else. Young people understand this issue, but they don't always vote at the same levels as older folks. Many young people are now starting to realize I've got to make my interests heard if I have the opportunity to vote. So in the 2020 U.S. presidential election, young people were more likely than older voters to say that climate change was their top concern. And they also voted at a rate 11 points higher than in 2016. That's the kind of thing that makes politicians sit up and take notice. As one 20-year-old organizer said, young people understand that if we want to save our lives and our future, then we have to do it ourselves. And this is part of your power that you have to use. Don't think that you can ignore politics. You don't have to be happy about it, but you can't ignore it. You can't be too pure for it. It's part of the process that is going to deliver all of us. Just part of a very powerful contribution uh, given by the former American President Barack Obama in Glasgow yesterday at COP26. Michael Reed on LMFM. Good morning to you, Liz, and thank you for calling uh, the programme this morning with uh, a very, very good point. I think uh, that a lot of our listeners 
will be delighted to hear mentioned on the radio this morning. Liz was in touch with us and she says, I know there's a lot of talk around restaurants and pubs, or some of them at least, not checking for COVID service, but I think we should also be looking at the complacency that is creeping into many shops when it comes to the provision of hand sanitizer. I was out shopping on Saturday and a number of shops I went into either had no sanitizer or uh, there was only a dribble. The containers were empty, which is a worry in some of them. Luckily, I always bring a sanitizer in my handbag for emergencies, but I just think shop owners need to be on top of this. So easy for COVID to spread in a shop if people are not sanitizing because customers are touching products and putting them down again. Thanks uh, for that, Liz. And uh, hopefully that message will be heeded by some of the shop owners uh, who have allowed uh, the sanitizers to run out. Uh, and of course, we all should be looking to sanitise our hands going in and going out of shops or wherever it is that we are going. Nora thinks it's a time to shut down the pubs and the restaurants again. The case numbers shot up once they reopened and now with the nightclubs open, they're going to continue to increase. And she says we need the government to take action now and make the decision to shut down or at the very least limit numbers that are allowed into pubs and restaurants for a few weeks until we get the numbers back down to manageable levels. She says we don't want to be back in a situation where we have to close down completely again. Steve uh, in touch with us uh, saying he doesn't see a way to avoid having to reintroduce restrictions of some description before the Christmas time. The case numbers are frightening and they're still climbing. Our health service is already stretched to the limit. Our frontline workers are exhausted and now it's our turn to do what we can to help keep the case numbers from growing further. We all have a part to play in this by living up to our social responsibility and not expecting the same few to fight this on their own. Thank you, Steve. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch. We'll come to more of those comments uh, in a short while. But uh, let's hear uh, from the Special Criminal Court. Yesterday, as you know, three men were convicted of falsely imprisoning and intentionally causing serious harm to a businessman, Kevin Lunny. Our court reporter, Frank Graney, was in court and... uh, heard what the judges, the three judges, had to say when they handed down uh, the um, uh, verdict, uh, which took almost four hours, Frank. Yeah, it was quite a long day yesterday um, before the Special Criminal Court. And I suppose the reason it took so long, Michael, is because it was held before the non-jury court. Obviously, the judges had to sum up the evidence. But what I suppose took them the longest yesterday was they had to outline their reasoning uh, behind the verdicts that were handed down yesterday. That doesn't happen in the ordinary central criminal court. A jury doesn't have to explain how they arrived at their decision. They simply deliver a verdict. But the special criminal court, given the nature of its makeup, they have to go into great detail as to what evidence they relied upon and how they arrived at their decision in relation to each of the four accused. And in the end, as you mentioned, uh, three of them were convicted of false imprisonment and intentionally causing serious harm to Mr. Lunny back in September of 2019. And the fourth man then, a 68-year-old man from Kilcogian County Cavan called Luke O'Reilly, uh, he was acquitted yesterday, so he was free to leave uh, when the court eventually wrapped up yesterday evening. All right, well, the charges were very serious uh, because what happened to Kevin Lunny was beyond belief. Absolutely, and, you know, I'm minded of the evidence that he gave back in June. Um, Well-worn story now. Kevin Mm -hmm. Lunny has been very vocal about what happened to him in in the immediate aftermath, but um, 
just I suppose researching ahead of yesterday's sentence hearing, I looked back on the evidence that he gave in June and I was minded of that short stroll that he made from the back of the court into the dock to give evidence. You know, a short stroll for you and I, but I did wonder at the time how he felt making his way up to the dock um, to give that evidence. Um, but if he was nervous, he certainly didn't seem it. And he outlined how he returned home from work on the evening of September 17th. 2019. He was a director of Quinn Industrial Holdings at the time. I know that company has since rebranded. And and that was the reason he was targeted and he was told so much by his captors. He finished work at about just after six, arrived home just at about half past six. And he noticed a light coloured BMW parked in the laneway. So he stopped his own Land Cruiser. And as soon as he did that, the BMW reversed its speed, smashed into his vehicle. He said two masked men came out. One of them, he noticed, had cable ties. He said that they dragged him out of the car. A third masked man approached and they forced him into the boot of a black Audi. He was taken to a yard, maybe 40, 45 minutes uh, away. He was brought into what he believed to be a horse box. Um, We heard he was subjected to a savage beating in that horse box. Um, He was asked when he was brought in there if he knew why he was there and he said he didn't and he said it was because of Quinn Industrial Holdings. He was repeatedly told that he had to resign from his position with the company. He was told the other directors had to resign too. Uh, He was told that he'd been under surveillance for six weeks. There was a reference made to his daughter which caused him great concern. He promised to step down and he told them that he would also instruct the other directors to do as he was being told. At one point then he said that one of uh, his captors became concerned about potentially leaving a trail of forensic evidence behind them. And this yeah. was because Kevin Lunny put up a fight. And um, when those two masked men broke into his car, he tried to fight them off. We heard he also managed to get the boot open as he was being transported to that yard in, in County Cavan. And when the raiders noticed, they stopped the car. And again, there was a struggle outside. So they became concerned that they were leaving some sort of DNA behind them. Um, a bottle of bleach was procured from a local shop. He was doused in this. He was stripped to his boxer shorts. He was beaten with a wooden bat. His leg was broken. He was attacked with a knife. We heard the letters QIH were carved into his chest as a reminder Mm. of why he'd been brought there and what he had to do to ensure they wouldn't come back. It's a a story that won't uh, be forgotten any time soon. Three of uh, the four accused, Alan O'Brien, 40, Darren Redmond, 27, and YZ, a third man who can't be identified, uh, all found guilty. Uh, But these were the paid muscle, weren't they, Frank? Uh, And uh, the company now known as Manic. Uh, in a statement uh, said yesterday that they trust the ongoing investigation into the identity of those who procured this terrible act will yield results. Uh, That's a a question uh, that many people would like uh, to see answered. Yeah, and it it was certainly something that um, the prosecuting barrister, Sean Guerin, thought was important to mention in his opening address when the trial opened some five months or so ago now, um, he said that the prosecution believed that what happened to Mr. Lunny was carried out as a direct result of his role with Quinn Industrial Holdings at the time. But he said that the case didn't depend on connecting any of the accused as they were at the time to any previous dealings with that company or to anyone connected to it. And he said that he didn't have to prove any personal motives for what happened to Mr. Lunny um, that day. We did hear about a man called Cyril McGuinness. Um, he was referenced in Mr. Guerin's opening address and at various stages throughout the entire trial. And again, he was mentioned yesterday. 
Cyril McGuinness um, is a well-known gangster. Um, he was known as Dublin Jimmy. He is since deceased. Uh, the Garth investigation revealed extensive contact between Cyril McGuinness's phone and other devices relevant to the case at times which appeared to be significant. He was also the one who procured a number of vehicles, it seems, which uh, Gardy say were used that day and the day before um, Mr. Lunny was abducted. In the end, it was accepted that he was the one pulling the strings from afar. As I mentioned, he is since deceased. We heard he died of a heart attack when police in the UK raided his home uh, sometime after uh, the abduc- abduction. Chief Superintendent Alan McGovern, he is the head of the Cavan Monaghan Garda Division. He gave a brief statement to Gardaí um, after the verdicts were handed down yesterday. And he said that they're not finished with this investigation. Uh, their inquiries are ongoing. Indeed, Mr Justice Tony Hunt, as he was delivering the verdicts yesterday, he said that given an operation of this nature, he would come as no surprise to him that other people were involved. And certainly Chief Superintendent uh, McGovern yesterday um, said that the work uh, doesn't stop here just because they have some convictions across the line. Again, one of the four accused was acquitted yesterday, but he said their investigation will continue. So it continues to be a live investigation. Very good. Frank, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Frank Grady, course correspondent with News Talk. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Mark McGowan, the president of uh, the Restaurants Association of Ireland, is on the line. Good morning to you once again, Mark, and thank you, as always, for joining us on uh, the programme. Uh, this morning, you'll be meeting with uh, government uh, officials uh, this afternoon, as uh, we've been hearing throughout uh, the morning, uh, this concern uh, about uh, the level of uh, compliance with restaurants uh, from your perspective and pubs uh, not asking for COVID certs uh, when people uh, come in to socialise. Uh, you're suggesting as a, an association uh, that establishments that don't follow these regulations should be shut down. For how long? Uh, morning, Michael. How are you? So um, there's been a significant amount of, of businesses that have been non-compliant. We've been lobbying very hard to get uh, business back open, to get restaurants back open. So it is disappointing to see. So we are absolutely asking for that, Michael. We're hoping that um, the checks will ramp up and uh, ensure safety of patrons and staff alike. Mm. For how long should a a restaurant be shut down if it's not asking for COVID certs or any of these other regulations uh, if uh, they're not providing sanitizer or not insisting on masks and that sort of thing? Well, the way it would happen is that the guardie would be informed and then when it comes to the renewal of the licence, uh, that would be affected. So first, the first measure has to be just compliance. We need to get people back on board and ensure that uh, they're not complacent. We're still, the virus is still there, it's still very much around the place. Um, and if, if I was a healthcare worker looking at those facts that have, have popped up, I'd be very disappointed mm. with all the hard work that they've put in. So we have to, as a business community, we have to respect all the hard work that's been done to get us to where we are at now and we have to step up. It's time to, time for uh, restaurants, bars, nightclubs, the entire sector has to stand up and be counted to make sure that we are compliant and, and we follow through what needs to be done to protect, to protect society. And would you go forward and look for something more immediate like a, a temporary closure order, um, something that would happen overnight, you're found to be non-compliant and you're shut for a week? I, I think that something should be done, Michael. I don't, I don't want to say that business should be closed. I don't think that's the way forward because it's not always the fault of the business owner. There, uh, there's a, a lot of different scenarios that can happen. Um, complacency could be one human error. I don't think it would be fair to close the business. I think what does have to happen is that in, inspections are ramped up and that, um, we follow through as a business community to make sure that, that we're not closed down again as a sector.
have you heard from members uh, who are not asking for COVID certs? Have you heard from people? Uh, have Has anyone explained to you why they're not doing it? I've, I haven't heard from specific businesses, but I've heard from friends and family that have been to various locations. Um, my wife was actually in Donegal last week and she was told when she was going into one particular venue that only three out of five people would need the certs, um, I believe. I've, I've heard numerous amounts of stories from various locations of people just letting the ball slip. So um, the majority now, in fairness, are compliant. So, so it's seven out of ten restaurants, yeah. Michael, mm-hmm. that are doing the right thing. You have yeah. to remember that here. And we have to remember that a lot of businesses are working huge, like, like they're putting huge amount of hours in, a lot of time, a lot of training. There's toolkits on uh, the, the Restaurant Association website. Falter Ireland are launching, uh, I saw an email came in earlier on with toolkits available to businesses. So the majority are, we have to remember that, are mm. compliant. It's the minority that are letting us down here. Yeah, and and, and, and that's the problem. They're letting you, they're letting everybody down. Uh, and uh, the consequence could be all the greater for you because you could be shut down again because of a few and only a small few not doing the right thing. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. A few bad apples and it's unfortunate that it is happening. Now, we're tired, we're lethargic, we're heading towards a very busy Christmas period. But this this isn't a time for slipping now. This is a time where we have to pull together as a sector. We have to step up, we have to show our staff and our teams what this is about and remind them why we're doing it, why we have all these safety uh, checks in place, why we have a, a COVID cert in place scenario. And um, we just have to step up. We all have to step up because the last thing we need now is to be in the same scenario that we were. It's only 12 months ago we were closed, remember, mm. on uh, Christmas Eve. We were at uh, level three scenario this time last year where we were only allowed 15 people outdoors. So we have to remember 
that, you know, this is a fragile scenario we're in here. We need to try and uh, be as, as, as complacent as, or, or we have to be as compliant as we can and um, make sure that we're open for the, for, for the long term. It's been suggested by some that it's not fair. Um, why is it just hospitality uh, that uh, has to ask for these certs? Yes, uh, well, it is a, It is more of a social scenario going into restaurants, bars, nightclubs. Um, we, we understand that there's uh, other sectors, I suppose, like um, the fitness scenario or a fitness sector or retail, I suppose, that um, would have a, a lot of people going into shops, etc. But we have to focus on our own sector. That's what's important here is that we make sure we're doing what we need to do to make sure we stay open and we can continue uh, to trade. All right. We heard Dr. Tony Houlihan at the start of the programme and then Dr. Ina Kelly, the president of the Irish Medical Organisation, suggest to people that if uh, they go in somewhere uh, and they're not asking for certs, uh, that they leave and they don't go back, uh, would that have a, an impact? Would that influence restaurants, given the fact that the vast majority of people are uh, vaccinated? Absolutely. I, I've had a few reminders myself. I answer the phone every now and in, in, in scholars. And um, people are actually asking what our protocols are, how, we're, um, how we are treating the virus and, and how we're working towards making sure that it doesn't get into the premises. So people, like, like the majority of diners want to come into a safe environment and it's up to us to make sure that we have um, everything in place to make mm. sure they are safe. I wonder if it depends on the clientele. Um, if it's a younger group uh, that you'd find to that you tend to find in a particular place uh, where they're not asking for the certs, I'm not sure, Michael. I don't yeah. know exactly where where that like. Like I know people who are afraid to go out at all now, uh, and if they are, they're watching for all that sort of thing. Uh, but of course, they're that bit older and they're worried about catching COVID because uh, it might have uh, more of an impact on their health. Absolutely. Well, they they might be they could be a vulnerable person as well. But I find that like when you're when you're operating on the ground, um, as the night does move on into the later stages, you are kind of chasing people around and making sure that they're um, that they're you know they're seated, they're not table hopping and everything else. Like a few drinks and that's their job. Yeah, but when people get a few drinks on them, they're 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 relaxing their guard, is it? Slightly relaxing the yeah. guard, and and then you're finding the staff are getting frustrated as well. So. That's what I'm talking about in terms of being lethargic. Maybe the staff that are just absolutely sick of it at this stage having to continuously follow up and um, constantly ask the public. So we, we, we also need the public to be a little bit more aware when they are going to pubs, when they are going to restaurants, that the, the virus is still out there. We need to be more careful as a society and it's time for everybody to step up, businesses and the public, to make sure that, that we can make this work. Okay. Um, why was this meeting called, do you know? Uh, I think we're expecting that the government will ask for a higher level of compliance uh, when it comes to the regulations. Uh, but is that the basis for the meeting? So there was about 13,000 compliance checks uh, since July, and um, there was a significant amount that were, not, were non-compliant. So they reckon three out of every ten restaurants were either uh, not fully following the guidelines mm. or not asking for COVID certs at the door. So it was actually a lesser percentage of that, again, that, w- that weren't asking for certs. But there could have been other issues within the premises, whether they be table hopping or not taking contact tracing details, etc. Mm. So uh, that's the reason uh, we're here. That's the reason why we have to meet with um, the, the department today. And uh, we're just, it's just trying to communicate then after that to our members and uh, the same in all the other associations to make sure that businesses are compliant. 
Okay, 34% uh, I think of restaurants in October, 37 of pubs in October, 70% of uh, establishments overall uh, in hospitality are, are found to be compliant, as you said. 23% required additional compliance measures and 7% were deemed to be non-compliant. Uh, so you're going to be asked to uh, up your game as an association. Uh, in other words, uh, for those members in your association who are not following uh, the guidelines, obviously in uh, scholars and uh, Peggy Moores, you're following them to the letter. Uh, but uh what message have you got, if any, for government? So, well, first of all, we, we, we are compliant. We are, we're going to continue to be compliant and we're going to get anybody who is not compliant to start uh, getting in line. Uh, we want to have uh, a good Christmas that's safe for our patrons and uh, staff. So we want to make sure that we're open and we're trading well um, so we, we, we can look forward to 2022. So that's the message we need to get out there and make sure that we, we follow we follow everything that we need to do to make sure that, um, you know, we have a bright future. All right, Mark. Well, we'll be hearing more about your meeting later in the day. But uh, thanks for joining us this morning. That's Mark McGowan, who's the president of uh, the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Uh, just uh, some uh, quick comments uh, coming to us uh, this morning. Uh, one to us uh, from Mark Deary. Uh, nice to hear from you, Mark. He says, uh, thanks for playing the Obama speech uh, just now, Michael. It was powerful, OK. I wouldn't be a huge fan, but he, he did challenge the notion that activists can dismiss politics. It's how the science and public anger on climate will become law. Here in Louth, looking at our new business as usual, Louth County Development Plan, it's clear most of our local public reps are not yet feeling political pressure on climate, even though our big towns and coastal communities will be deeply impacted if we don't get profound change. Many thanks, uh, Mark, uh, for texting the programme and good to hear from you. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, I suppose uh, the expectation is at uh, this stage uh, that the British government will invoke Article 16 of uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol sometime after the end of COP26. Uh, and COP26 will finish in Glasgow on Friday. Uh, what will that mean? Um, well, let's uh, talk about uh, that now with Paddy Malone, who's the PRO for Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. And a very good morning to you, Paddy, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Uh, we've seen streets in Northern Ireland on fire uh, recently with children very worried about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Buses uh, have been hijacked by armed men uh, and set alight a and so on. I suppose uh, that could bring us to a worst-case scenario, but it, it seems in a best-case scenario... That, or at least a first case scenario that uh, we'll be uh, looking at the potential of a trade war. Is that what your expectation of such a move would be and what would that mean? Well, it's my fear rather than my expectation. And, and the frustrating thing about this is there's no need for any of this. Um, the protocol, would, would, from the point of view of North-South, was working well. Um, businesses up on both sides of the border um, incredibly so I mean it's just uh, been remarkable switch and I know talking to people in Intertrade about down in Uri who are really pushing this an awful lot this this all Ireland approach to, to business that they have been absolutely delighted with, with the response that business has made to the area in relation to and this is where the problem arises in relation to East West or in other words Northern Ireland to Great Britain the EU have shown a degree of flexibility and bending of the rules to accommodate the British. They've even gone back recently with another paper. 
So what, what needs to be done is to, 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 to calm down and to look at the two questions that face Northern Ireland. One is the political question and the other is the economic question. And the economic question has been more or less addressed, as I said, north-south. And east-west, Europe has made significant amendments and suggestions. And all it's, but what you look for is a response that's positive. When you're, when you're negotiating or when you're trying to work through a problem, you wait for the other side to give you something back. You know, that there has to be quid pro quo. That's not coming. But the other side of it is the political side. Mm. And, you know, let's be honest about this. The Good Friday Agreement and the passing of the referendums north and south subsequently confirmed the political status of Northern Ireland for the moment. Mm. And we've and, got uh, to get uh, used uh, to that. Only and, for and the moment. that position. Yeah. And the North have got to do it. And the politicians have got to lead. Yeah, and, well, Billy Hutchinson... Uh uh, issuing a statement yesterday, the PUP withdrawing its support for the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, you have this uh, sort of internal war within unionist politics uh, who can be uh, more loyalist uh, than the other, who can be more opposed uh, to the protocol uh, and how that can extend on to positions like well, that. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. I think business leaders have to stand up and say the protocol is working, uh, particularly North-South, and that we have... There are teething problems east-west, but the majority of the teething problems east-west, and I've had some practical experience of dealing with this uh, myself. I had had uh, businesses in the UK, in Great Britain, ringing Mm. me and saying, don't tell me what I should have done last year. I did what Boris did and put the farmers in the bin. What do I do now? Mm. No, we've been able to work with those businesses, and they're now back operating properly, not east-west. So it can be done. There's practical solutions if we all calm down and look at it. And what's got to be drummed into people is this is not an attack on the political status of Northern Ireland. It's an economic win for Northern Ireland in that they can have their cake and eat it. They're part of the UK from the point of view of the of the UK economy and the UK VAT rates, but they're also part of the EU. So they actually luckily enough, are facing in both directions. So they, they, it's a win-win, and it's not often in politics that you're presented with a win-win. And when you're presented with a, with a win-win and you say no to it, well, it's, that's why Europe is scratching its head, because it can't understand this, because it, Northern Ireland has got the best of both. And, you know, I think wearing, you know, looking at it politically, economically, there's no argument. Looking at it politically, Boris Johnson is trying to find deflections away from let's face it, what was a catastrophic handling of the COVID situation. I mean, the UK has come out and been condemned over the last three or four weeks by a House of Commons Select Committee, which consists of both, both sides saying that Britain failed miserably. Never mind the NHS being the greatest thing since sliced bread. They failed miserably. And it's not the NHS's problem. And almost immediately, the ratcheting up of Brexit, which is to distract. So it's a matter of, you know, there's a real problem here, but distracted by a, a piece of nonsense on the, uh, somewhere else. Uh, and that's what this is. It's a political mm. piece of nonsense. And um, Billy Hutchinson no, was, a guy that actually, yeah. uh, was a guy actually that I, I would have said, he, he sees through the palaver and the, and, 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 and the smoke. So I'm a wee bit disappointed that, that he doesn't see it. But, you know, if he would come down to the border area, if he came down and saw the north south walking, and if he goes to Lawn and sees that the trucks are coming off the ferry, so that there isn't, you know, it, it can be cut round, and that's the pro- that's the point to get across. Nonsense. Are you me from a, from a, from a mm. north point of view? Where do I stand? Yeah. Look, I met Newry. Well, Chamber. I know, I know where you stand. <laughs> I met Newry Chamber last put, week. We, we yeah. actually sat down to discuss the sixth annual Brexit conference. 
and we said hopefully we won't have the sixth annual Brexit. Oh well they may be back to uh, square one uh, and back to a blank page or, or back to calling the whole thing off. Uh, well, we were hoping that we were going to a situation where we would be talking about post-Brexit and how to work on the relationships between North and South. We've held conferences every year with Newry. Now over the last five years it has been billed as the Brexit conference and we was actually saying maybe this year we're finally away from it. Tell me uh, what a, a trade war looks like though. Uh, I mean... If there was to be a trade war, what would that mean? It would mean that Britain would pick certain products that they would put huge customs duties on. Now, when, when there was a trade war between Britain, uh, between the EU and the United States two years ago, the, e, the United States put, I think they increased the, the, the VAT rate on, or the customs rate on uh, imported French wine to an extent that no one could afford to buy the thing. Uh, so they would pick soft targets like that where they could put up a massive amount of taxation. They could pick soft targets on, for us like one of the ones that would scare me would be if they went after beef or something like that, where, where where we have a problem because we have to we couldn't find alternative markets quickly enough if you follow me. But what you're looking at would be significant increases in certain products. Now both sides would be careful to pick a product that's not going to really hurt their own people, mm. but would damage the other side. So. And, 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 and that tit for tat can accelerate and, and get nasty very quickly. So you know? give us a, an example. A, a 10 euro bottle of wine, 20 euro? No, it'd be more like 30. 30, right, okay. You know, I mean, yeah. in, and, and, and then you're into smuggling and you're into, oh, and we'd be talking about something else in six weeks' time. You know, that's the problem. Because you, that border in the north is porous. And you're talking about empty shelves, I, I take it. And up. you're talking about empty uh, shelves. And so this you're is talking a, about displacement of, 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 of products. And, you know, if you look at what happened with the protocol, businesses in the north were able to identify customers uh, suppliers in the south and vice versa so the economies will move when, when these things happen but they're not good for anybody they're not good for the consumer they're not good for industry they displace business it's it's a bad situation and it, do, it, it can't help um, so I don't want a situation where you know a, a bottle of uh, if you went to a, a Sainsbury's or you go in, uh, and a bottle of um, New Zealand wine is the normal price but a bottle of French wine is three times that, and you're not going to buy it. Mm. You know, and you could see it coming the other way. I'm sure it's not just wine, though. Well, it's not. I'm t- taking yeah. wine as, a, as an mm. example where the, the, the British would have an alternative, uh, and they could just simply slap the, slap the customs duty on European wine. I'm just, as, as an example. There are probably others that we could sit down and think of. I mean, one of the ones that got hit a couple of years ago was Waterford Crystal, when there was a war between Europe and, and America. Waterford Crystal was an easy target. Um, because most Americans wouldn't care what the price of water for crystal is, and those that do buy water for crystal will pay for it. Uh, so they they got you know that that's the sort of luxury products you're talking about where there is an alternative. That that would be the first starting that would be the starting off point. It won't be something basic. It'll be something simple that you, that they, that they can do that, and they can you know Boris can go out and wave the Union Jack and say buy New Zealand wine because the bloody French aren't being reasonable. Right. You know. I mean, look, the, the one. So you're talking about it. You're talking about a crazy situation. Well, uh, it's, 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 total, it's total rubbish. I mean, the French and the whole row about the channel and about mm. fishing in that port, you can take it for granted that that would be where it starts, you know. Um, 
when we get to cut yeah, but the British believe that they won that because they played hardball uh, and that's uh, undoubtedly the attitude that they're going to take here but if they do that and they push it too far well then the European Union could call the whole thing off there is this talk that if they invoke or move to invoke Article 16 they have to give it a month's notice uh, but the European Union might say don't bother don't bother. This this could happen very, very quickly or it could happen in a month's time uh, or it, it could happen uh, after that uh, period uh, of time yeah, look, with some negotiation. no question but that COVID, it, it, the COP26, he's waiting for that to finish yeah. and then he's going to sit down and think. Now, the problem we have with Boris Johnson is the man isn't able to think longer than a week. I mean, and they say a week is long term in politics. That's about Boris's horizon, horizon time span. He is not thinking three, four years down the road. Theresa May, for all that you would say about her political naivety and, and, and not being able to get the, the, the Brexit deal that she wanted through, through the House of Commons, was thinking long term, did see the longer picture, you know. Um, but Boris was quite happy to sign a document last year knowing that he was going to throw it out within, within 12 months. Um, there was a time when people would say an Englishman's word is his bond. Unfortunately, that's not wrong with the case. And that's what's going to make life very difficult for EU negotiators. Can they believe what's coming from Lord Frost on the other side? You know, and I would not like to be a, a negotiator. And, and going back to a, a Brussels negotiator, going back to Ursula uh, van der Leyen saying, we have an agreement. And she'd look and say, are you sure you have an agreement? Mm. Because, you know, Boris is playing... As I said, I think this is largely a distraction away from his incompetence in other areas. What are you expecting to happen? Uh, I'm hoping that, as I call him, the Cooley man, will be able to talk some sense into Boris by waving a big stick. In other words, President Biden. Uh, I'm hoping that he will be able to do something like that. I'm hoping that Biden will say that he be, he become this Churchillian statesman that he thinks he is and say, uh, I, 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 I'm bigger than the European Union petty squabbles. I'll settle this on a grand scale. I'm hoping that somebody like that will happen. Do I think he's capable of doing it? No. So I think at that stage it je- degenerates into a, an absolute farce. And short term, it could be... It could, it could be, as I said, it, 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 they won't be picking t- targets that will affect you and me immediately. They'll be picking off individual industries and individual sectors. So my worry is for those where there is an alternative for the British. And, 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 and really, you know, they, they can't switch the beef to Argentinian beef quickly. So we're safe enough for the moment. But long term, it's a major worry. You know, I, I, anything that gets in the way of business is detrimental to employment in the town and employment in the region so and if there is different rules on one side of the border compared to the other on any area or any pricing there is smuggling so that each issue is a long-term threat to the stability of the Lindock area but we're a long way from that side of it michael we'll be playing you know i'm gonna i'm gonna stick money on i'm gonna stick out the custom duty on this product and the French and the, uh, the European mm-hmm. Union re- re- reciprocating, and then there'll be an asking for the escalation. So it could take a long time. Like how many people were aware that the US and, and, and Europe had a trade war for about three years? Mm. It didn't really have a huge impact because both sides were shadow boxing. And I'm hoping that there'll be an offer out of shadow boxing, even if a trade war does start okay. for the immediate future. All right, well, there's a, a lot of fear at the moment. Hopefully that won't uh, transpire into oh, something absolutely. more real. All right, Paddy, thank you indeed, uh, okay. as always, for joining us this morning. Paddy Malone, PRO for Dundalk Chamber of Commerce. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we heard uh, Barack Obama early in uh, the programme uh, suggest to young people that they get political 
and uh, try put some sense of urgency into the adults or the old men in suits about climate change and make them act now. Uh, the former American president was also speaking at COP26 yesterday about how the global north should be helping out those who are far less well off in the global south. And on Paris, our goal was to turn progress into an enduring framework that would give the world confidence in a low-carbon future. An agreement where countries would update their emissions targets on a regular basis. An agreement that would help developing nations get the resources they need to skip the dirty phase of development and help those nations that are most vulnerable to climate change get the resources they need to adapt. That's Barack Obama. Let's uh, speak uh, to Richard Bruton, Fine Gael TD for Dublin Bay North and uh, a member of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Change. And uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed. Uh, indeed, uh, the Minister for the Environment, Eamon Ryan, was at COP26 as well yesterday and made an announcement that Ireland is to give at least €10 million Euro for the Adaptation Fund uh, as its own, which will help those developing countries. Yes, indeed. I mean, I think this is a key part of the challenge. I mean, the, the reality is that you know greenhouse gases are toxic. They may not create black fumes and a foul smell, but they're destroying our planet. And every country, every community, every individual has to get on board of this. But for underdeveloped countries who perhaps are highly dependent on 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 sources of fuel, there has to be help. Uh, and you know, Ireland has committed. I think it's to 225 million per year. Year, uh, in this effort, uh, as well as you know, uh, confronting our own many challenges. Mm. And what about those challenges, our own challenges, uh, the domestic challenges at home, and indeed uh, the climate action plan, which uh, is uh, the blueprint, if you like, for facing into those challenges? Are we on target to reduce emissions on the scale that is necessary? Well, we haven't been on target. I think we were to reduce in the period of 2020 by 20%. We only achieved about 17% uh, reduction uh, on the aggregate. So we are off target. And I think that's why we've now a new climate bill, a new climate plan, and we are committing to an even higher target of 51% than the previous one. Uh, So we have a lot of ground to make up, uh, but we now have a clear strategy. It's underpinned by legislation. And there's a commitment to work with all the different sections of our community to try to make this uh, be achieved as quickly as possible. Uh, I suppose this is pretty difficult political uh, work because, you know, you see yourself that there's always a conflict. People will say, you know, that's too much to ask Mm. of me. But the reality is we all have to step out of, you know, the habits that we've got comfortable with. uh, And whether it's the way we manage our land, the way we manage our vehicles, the way we manage our homes, every one of us has to make big changes and the government has to be there to assist with that. But it can't, you know, say, it can't exempt 
people from making the changes. It, it, it helps them to make those changes more quickly because the future is with those enterprises who react first and get on the right side of this challenge. And similarly, you know, we will hand on our homes to the next generation resilient in the face of climate if we make the changes now. So mm. it is about, you know, making change for the next generation Okay. Uh, nobody wants uh, to climb the mountain, but everybody wants get to get to the top. Um, should we be facilitating data centres in this country? Well, data centres have become a huge element of our, you know, economic success in that, you know, we've attracted um, very major innovative companies to our shores and we have a very good climate for managing data centres. In the short term, they are putting pressure on our electricity system. There's no doubt about that. And what AirGrid are doing is entering into arrangements with data centres to try to minimise their impact to use their reserves uh, to, uh, you know, protect the grid at times of peak demand. So that can get us through this, but there will be a new policy on on data centres. I don't think it will certainly mean, uh, you know, stopping all building of data centres because they're so intrinsic to, you know, the sort of thing we're now doing, remote working, uh, which have a very positive impact on climate. But, uh, you know, there will be some conditionality and trying to make sure that data centres are designed in a way that they uh, have these reserves to manage periods of peak, you know, when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine, you need standby capacity and they will have to be part of that solution. And part of the solution is the infrastructure, is it? Uh, Projects, for example, like the North-South Interconnector. There's no doubt. I mean, we have to, a big part of the change is electrifying our, the way we heat our homes, electrifying our vehicles uh, and switching from, you know, fossil fuel power to uh, renewable power. And that does require redesigning our grid, having more interconnection. Uh, You know, so, you know, electricity is a huge part of the change here. It's also a huge long-term opportunity for Ireland because we can generate uh, energy cheaply from wind and from offshore facilities and we, you know, big part of our success in in this will be in you making sure that those uh, facilities can be developed successfully in Ireland. It can be a very successful business and exporting Mm. business for Ireland and, you know, contributing massively to to, uh, decarbonisation. Okay. Do you believe that the North-South Interconnector will be developed successfully? Yes, uh, of course. It, it has to be developed successfully. You know, the legal obstacles ha- have been removed, but there is to be a, a, a review, and I understand there's consultation around that review, uh, but it is a, an intrinsic part of delivering uh, you know, a good power system to this island. And without a good power system, you know, most of our ambitions to electrify transport uh, or electrify heating would be fr- frustrated. So, you know, it is part of, I suppose, the adjustment that we have to make. You know, we've been very used to having holes in every village full of a, a, an inflammable liquid, namely petrol. Uh, but, you know, that's the infrastructure of the past that we have to move away from. And the new infrastructure is going to be a power infrastructure that we have to design carefully. Uh, and, of course, mm. listen to people uh, and their concerns. Mm. But 
we still have to build it and find a way of delivering uh, you know, a cleaner a cleaner world. And to bring them with you, is it? Uh, I mean, uh, do you expect uh, that uh, the government will have to bring, I don't know how many thousands of people who, who live uh, along the line of uh, the route of uh, the North-South Interconnector, let, let alone the politicians? A few of them come to mind in, in your own party, like Helen McEntee, Damien English or Heather Humphreys. Uh, do, we, do you need to convince them of the error of their ways? Well, I think this whole uh, journey is going to be about bringing people with this. I mean, there's a lot of people, for example, who oppose having a price on carbon. Mm. Uh, But if we do not price activities that emit massive pollution and make those more expensive to uh, to carry on with, we don't make those changes. We are not going. To, we are going to make the future generations yeah, pay for the, these that, things. So now we're veering into the blah 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 of COP twenty six, as Greta Thunberg uh, portrayed it. Uh, uh, and perhaps you can explain to me why I'm wrong, because I'm sure you'll want to do that. But the point that I, I'm making by talking about the blah, 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 is that if we were to bring Helen McEntee, Damien English or Regina Doherty onto this programme, they would say that under no circumstance uh, is the North-South Interconnector going to go ahead uh, over ground as planned uh, and as has been opposed for 12 or 13 years at this stage. We bring on a a different member of uh, their party who will tell us that in government the party will deliver successfully a project of that sort. How can people uh, balance all of that in their own heads? Because I suppose politics ultimately is about trying to resolve conflicts and we will have conflicts over every every element of this. There's conflicts in agriculture, there's conflicts around the carbon tax, there'll be conflicts not just the one around the north-south interconnector but there'll be conflicts around all of the infrastructure we need to to, to build. Uh, That's the reality. This is, uh, if this were easy to be done, it would be done long ago but we have become addicted to fossil fuel in this Mm. country. We're one of the highest emitters in the world, we emit five times more per head of the population than the average Indian. So we have to find a way of convincing people to come with us on this journey of change, because there's nothing sure that if Ireland does not change, we will be condemning Ireland to be uncompetitive in a future that is different. In 10, 20 years' time, when carbon is being priced at €250 a tonne on the marketplace, it will be a very different world we have to compete in. And it's the early movers, communities who you know, look at this in a realistic way mm. and try to negotiate something fair, but still get it done. And what uh, is it? Is it that the local Fine Gael politicians just don't get it, that they don't understand climate change? Uh, when you well, talk I'm, about Minister McEntee sure or Minister English or Minister Humphreys or Senator uh, Doherty, uh, are, are they missing something or what's the problem here? I'm sure they accurately reflect the, the, the feelings on the ground. But, uh, and I'm sure that a lot of people would like not to have to pay a carbon price. And, you know, lots of people would like their homes retrofitted without them having to put their hand in their pockets at all. Uh, you know, that's the reality. This is tough. This is right. hard. So they're, they're, they're in the blah, blah, blah camp, are they? I think they are, you know, they're reflecting people, I'm sure, who listen to your radio station, who ring you in regularly and who, who talk to you as well. There, you know, every, there's a, everyone is very worried about climate uh, and we, you know, we have to move from being anxious about it and pointing the finger at others to finding a way of solving it. That's, that's really the challenge for us. Uh, but I think, 
you know, the one thing we can be sure of is that the enterprises and the farms and the homes that make the change early will be the ones who are prosperous and uh, comfortable in the years ahead. They will pass on to their children, you know, assets and a country that is, uh, you know, environmentally sound and that's the challenge but what makes this very different usually you know disruptive technology comes away comes along and sweeps away old ways here as barack obama was saying in your introduction Mm -hmm. we have to do this by human will people have to decide we want to do it and uh, our politicians have to equally decide that we want to do it and to make these changes in our lives uh, I, I'm not trying to preach at people mm. but that's just the reality like if we if we don't find a way of doing this uh, we will all suffer together yeah. uh, and that's the, 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 the challenge of, of yeah. a situation like this. I think we're probably all guilty to some degree of uh, wanting to get to the top of the mountain. Uh, getting there is a, a different job uh, but thank you indeed uh, as always for joining us. Uh, Thanks this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Richard Bruton, Finnegale TD for Dublin Bay North and a member of the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station joins us for the report this week. And I imagine that there's a, a lot of people listening to us uh, this morning uh, who will hope that somebody can help with investigations into how their houses were broken into. We have an awful lot of burglaries to report on this week and we're going to begin in Kells in County Meath. Michael, Gardy in Kells are investigating a burglary that occurred in Sunset Heights in Kells between Thursday the 27th of October and Saturday the 30th of October. So again, if anybody saw anything suspicious in the area, we're asking you to contact Kells Garda Station on 046-9280-820. The next burglary happened in Trim. And the Trim Detective Unit are investigating that this occurred in the Belfry and Trim where a substantial amount of jewellery was stolen. The incident occurred between Thursday the 27th of October and Sunday the 31st of October. The rear patio door was smashed in this instance. If anybody saw any suspicious activity or indeed heard anything, we're asking you to contact Trim Garda Station on 046-948-1540. We go back to Tuesday of last week and a number of burglaries that happened in around Navan. Yes, so Navangardia are investigating two burglaries which occurred on Tuesday the 2nd of November between 7.30 and 8pm in the Gibstown area where neighbouring houses were broken into. Anyone who may have been in the area during the time and noticed anything suspicious is asked to contact Navangardia station on 046-9036-100. To another burglary, this one in Kells. Again, Kellsgardia are investigating a burglary that occurred at a house in Destinrath, Drumbara, at approximately 5.45pm on Thursday, November 4th. Anyone who may have been in the area at the time and again notice anything suspicious is asked to contact Kelsgard Station on 046-9280-820. Then to Loud Village and a number of burglaries that occurred between Wednesday and Friday of last week in Mulla Valley. That's right. So Guardian Loud are investigating these burglaries. Um, on Wednesday the 3rd of November, sometime between 9am and 7pm, a house was broken into. And unfortunately for this homeowner, the house was broken into again two days later 
on Friday the 5th of November in the early evening between 4.30 and 6pm. If you saw anything out of the ordinary or suspicious over the couple of days, we are asking you to contact Loud Garda Station on 046-937-4102. Gosh, that's really unusual, isn't it? The same house broken into twice in the same week. It is unusual. It is very unusual, Michael. Okay, uh, we've a, a stolen vehicle to report on next. This was taken in Navan. That's right. On Monday the 1st of November in Johnstown Village, a delivery driver was doing a drop-off and his grey Renault Clio with the partial registration of 12G was stolen. If anybody witnessed the incident or has any information in relation to the current whereabouts of this grey Cl- Renault Clio, you're asked to contact Navangar, the station, on 046-9036-100. OK, some air cable that was stolen next to report on. Yes, we've two separate tests of air um, fibre cable. The first one was from Carderry in Knockbridge and Dundalk on the 2nd of November during the morning, so between 8am and 12 The second test was overnight on Wednesday the 3rd of November into Thursday morning in the Polecast area of Lobenstown. If you saw any suspicious activity in either area, you're asked to either contact Gardaí and Loud on 042-937-4102 or Navin on 046-9036-100. And next to an assault uh, that occurred in Dundalk over the weekend. Yes, Guardian Dundalk were investigating an assault which happened at Patrick at Park Street, apologies, in Dundalk on the 6th of November at around 1am. A man was assaulted by a gang of youth. So if you're in the area at any stage during the evening and have any information that you'd like to pass on to Gardaí, Please contact them at Dundalk Garda Station on 042-938-8400. Or for any of these incidents that you might have information, you can also contact the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-1. Okay, before you leave us, Garda, uh, just as I mentioned, there was an awful lot of burglaries uh, this week. I'm not sure why that is, if it's the dark evenings uh, going into the winter uh, or or what it is. uh, But maybe you'd have some advice for our listeners. Absolutely, Michael. So the last up light up is on Garcia Connor's anti-burglary awareness campaign, which encourages homeowners to protect their homes over the winter months when burglaries traditionally tend to rise. Criminals love to see homes in darkness, as it indicates the house may be unoccupied. Many of our wintertime burglaries occur in the early evening for that reason. So whether you're at home or going out, if you can follow these simple steps to ensure that our homes are not easy prey for a burglar, now that the evenings are getting dark so early on in the day. Turn on some lights. Consider using timer switches. Lock all windows and doors. Use your alarm, whether you're going out or you're staying inside the house. Store keys away from doors, windows and letterboxes. Don't keep large amounts of cash or jewellery in the house. Maybe you can, check on elderly or vulnerable neighbours or even inform your local guard station that these people are there and might could do with somebody dropping into them. And again, if you report suspicious activity to your local guard station, preferably at the time that it's happening, and we'll be able to get on top of things then. Garda Olga Bacon of Trim Garda Station, thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today, and we'll be back, God willing, tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.